Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sean Atkinson. Today we're talking about building digital forensics and an incident response capability in-house. And joining us for this discussion is Lou Smith. Lou, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's uh, it's exciting to be here. I know we talked about this a little bit before bringing me on. And um, it, I, I just think it's a good idea to bring people kind of up to speed um, hearing it from the horse's mouth. Do people say that anymore? I don't know, but I just said it. So I'm going to roll with it. I think it's, it's important to have that type of instruction and guidance, uh, insight from somebody who's in the trenches taking grenades, you know, on a daily basis. So this is, this is exciting for me. I know we appreciate you taking the time out, Lou. I know you're very busy, um, trying to dodge those grenades and then also disarm them, as it were, with your capability and skill. Lou, I wondered if you could just give us a little brief history uh, about Lou, your background, training, things of that nature. Sure, sure. So I uh, I went to school initially for digital forensics. Uh, I was a graduate of UAlbany, essentially the second year they were running the digital forensics uh, bachelor's degree. Um, so it was the school was getting things, you know, still trying to get their footing and everything. But upon the exit, um, or before I guess I graduated, I was brought in to New York State and I worked for their Cyber Command Center, uh, essentially as an intern initially, and then I was brought in as an employee um, in their Cyber Command Center directly supporting uh, their CERT as well. So I got my feet wet, not only with kind of the SOC-based role, but also doing work on the CERT side of the house, which directly complemented exactly what I had gone through with college. Um, while I was there at the state, uh, I had gone through and I got my certifications. I got my G-Pen through them, which is fantastic. I took that actually with you, Sean, uh, before we, we are where we are today, um, as well as uh, I went and got uh, Cellbrite certified as well. That was another interesting experience because we did do a lot of mobile-based uh, forensics there as well. And essentially bring bring things up to speed. Uh, I was hired here at, uh, at CIS uh, to, to come in as, as a CERT analyst. And right now I currently, I currently work as a senior intrusion analyst but anyway, that's essentially in a nutshell my story. Um, I I work both now on on the side of the house, both with uh, both with you, Sean, and the CISA side of the house as well as CERT. So I get the best of both worlds: externally facing SLTT based work as well as the in, internal work right. as well. And uh, no, that's uh, I think one of the reasons why we wanted to have this discussion today is that. The capabilities that um, small to medium-sized organizations in terms of needing expertise, whether that's in-house or outsourced, in terms of these elements, Lou. And one of the ones I, I really wanted to talk to you about is we'll go through kind of high level and then we'll get down to some technical elements. But from the really from the top-down approach, uh, I think leadership appreciation for the need for this type of capability some of your experience, is that well communicated? Is there a need for continuous education up the chain to management in terms of here's where we need to specify specific skill sets because of the threats and, and what we're seeing uh, in the wild, as it were? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very great question. It's a very dynamic answer. Um, I think a lot of times, definitely continued education is, is of the utmost importance. 
we currently operate within an ever-evolving threat landscape. It's always changing. So therefore, our response to that also needs to be fluid in, in nature as well. Um, as you go further up the chain, I've found, and this is just, again, this is just my experience at, at a state level, as well as, um, you know, some some experiences, um, you know, with, with CIS as well, CIS as well um, everyone's understanding of incident response, everyone's definition, I should say, is a little different, and that's fine. But when you try and kind of put the process of what you do and what incident response is into a very small, very well-packaged box, you don't always necessarily get the best outcome because you have to be fluid in the approach. There isn't necessarily a checklist when it comes down to incident response. You have to be willing to look a little bit outside of that um, and understand that every time you pick up the phone, every time you're, you're responding to some sort of an alert and you're triaging it, it's going to be different by design because there are, you know, a, a t tons of different threats. And especially with, uh, you know, the MSI SAC and uh, side of the house, you're dealing with different size organizations, large, small, different skill sets, different ex levels of expertise. And that to me... Um, that is, it's important to be able to, to, to kind of grapple with that in real time and understand that you can't just, there isn't one set playbook. You have things that you model and approach after. And then in the real world, that real world application of it, it's going to be a little bit different. So um, to your point, yes, I think, I think that that level of continued education, communication up the chain and, and really making it uh, a point to to educate people that do sit higher up on that chain that might not necessarily be the most technically savvy, working to get them to understand to the best of their ability what incident response is and that it isn't something that it, it's not automated. It requires the human element. It requires a set of eyes or multiple sets of eyes in a lot of different cases to actually figure out what the best approach is because there's so many different network uh uh, instances, how people have things deployed within their network, whether it's correctly, incorrectly, the, the, the lack of logging, visibility, whatever it is, it's always going to be different when you're working at, at, at the level we are. And I think that trickles down to, to any size organization. You're always going to have people that are overly technical and people who are not technical. So getting a, a, an understanding of what incident response is and how that kind of curtails into forensic analysis is of the utmost importance up the chain and down the chain. No, that's fantastic. Um, I think one of the things, you know, one of the paradigms I've been playing with, especially with incident response, uh, Lou, is um, bringing in those from higher in the organization into those tabletops and practice for incident response to see how it works. I think sh telling someone something and showing someone something, a complete two completely different paradigms. And I think they then build an appreciation. Want to get your thoughts. Is that an idea? Again, obviously, we've got to be considerate of time, resources. But ultimately, I think the threat of not understanding incident response and a forensics capability from the electronic perspective, obviously, is critically important for any business. You know, the uh, and this is what I, I say this a number of times throughout the podcast, Lou. Cybersecurity is not a technology risk. This is a business risk. And, and, and trying to inform through these types of processes and practices, uh, I think is important. What do you think? I absolutely agree. Um, again, I think there's there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, it, it's, it's almost like a breakdown of understanding 
um, because I think the term cybersecurity has been used as such, it's, it's a buzzword and it has been for, for a number of years, but even more so now um, in the last couple of years, whether it's geopolitical events, whether it's political events, it doesn't make a difference. It has become a buzzword, whether we like that or not. And it really, the, the education portion of that, um, bringing in people, the, the hands-on element of it, I think that is extremely important because obviously everyone learns differently. Some people can sit down, they can read a blog and then internalize that. They can read a, a training book, they can internalize that, whatever it might be. Um, but to be but to be able to see it in practice, um, I think that is invaluable because you, you do it. I, I feel like with with a number of people, you do it once and then it's like, OK, I get an idea of what goes into this, like in, in prepping an incident response, an incident response call, excuse me, conducting an incident response call um, and then actually the aftermath of that, the follow up, all of those things. And this is just using incident response as an example. I think it has the ability to highlight all of the different things that go into that. So if it's a tabletop, for example, that's another great way to get people to be thinking uh, strategically, technically, but also, you know, in, you, you know, in, in war, for example, things just happen. Chaos ensues and you have to be thinking on your feet. Tabletop exercises, um, you know, real world exercises, you know, red teaming, things like that setting things up to, to really test your capabilities in that type of an environment where things are just occurring as they do, I think that also um, can really, really like help better enable people from a mental perspective um, on how to approach things because um, specific to incident response and forensic analysis, I believe a lot of it is in the approach. And because it's so dynamic, you're always in some ways approaching it differently based on certain factors that exist. So um, I, I don't know if that answers your question, <laughs> but I, 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 I agree in the sense um, getting, getting people continued experience, both hands-on and academic, as well as establishing firm lines of communication, um, again, up and down the chain is, is extremely important, is extremely important. No, fantastic. It actually leads me into really the next question, Lou, and this may be one that is looking at the specific traits, the skill sets, not necessarily technical, but uh, you, you kind of mentioned it in some cases, but the skill set that makes uh, someone really successful in, in a role such as digital forensic and incident response. Is there any of those high level skills, maybe even soft skills, uh, we'll talk about the technical skills, that you think that um, would, um, for any of our listeners, that, oh, you know, I have this interest and, in, uh, you know, I think that way as well. Is this a career path for me? Uh, any of those that you would uh, think make for better? Uh, again, any skill set is going to be appreciated in an underappreciated role, such as obviously cybersecurity. And that gets, you know, around that there's a lot of roles available and not enough people to fill them. So kind of your thoughts there with the skill set. I think uh, as far as non-technical skills are concerned, I think communication skills are like interpersonal skills, communication skills, that is, that's invaluable. And I know to a certain degree, some of it can be learned and other, and other aspects of that are just, you, you, you have it or you don't. Um, but the ability to hear something and actually listen, because there is a difference between hearing something and listening. Um, when it comes to triage, 
uh, initially those first few, whether they're the first few sets of emails, the first time you're on the phone with people, actually the approach, th those can be some of the most critical, especially if you're trying to prevent something larger from occurring. So the ability to hear and then uh, kind of react and respond to that, being cognizant uh, of, of all of the aspects that are tied into this, um, that's a huge part of it. Um, asking the right questions, that's another aspect, which I don't know if that's necessarily a skill set, but it's, again, I, I mentioned like the strategic, like the thought process that, that, uh, that happens. I think that's, um, that's very important. Um, not necessarily a technical skill, but a skill set, um, understanding how to use Microsoft Excel. Now you're probably going to be like, well, what does that mean? Microsoft Excel, uh, spreadsheets, logging, cataloging, building timelines that I use that all, I use it in every case. I use Excel in every case because it helps build the narrative. Part of, you know, instant response, curtailing that with, with forensic analysis, oftentimes that's the big question. How did this happen? What happened during the, during the time frame in which it had occurred? Um, and, and what are those, what's the evidence? What are the details surrounding the evidence? And oftentimes that looks very good and it's very easy to understand from the standpoint of um, the partner. So designing something in, in from, from keeping it track from my perspective, as an analyst, um, timelining properly. So resource management is huge. Um, that's, that's like a, I guess a soft skill. Um, and then the ability to be able to display information, display your findings in a very easy to read format, which I find for me to be Microsoft Excel, even if it's, even if it's a separate timeline than something I share with them, that keeps my thoughts in order because unlike other organizations, we are all, like as as a as a senior cert analyst or uh, what wh whatever position, we are handling multiple cases at one time. So in in order for me to keep that all straight in my head, I have to like I have to catalog it. Not everybody has to do that, but um, I, I think those are some of the big soft skills um, that that help build like a, a very well to do and successful um, you know analyst. And I think. Um along the same lines, you know, building that Excel is the documentation that's required in order to go through procedurally everything that was done with respect to um, to a case. And so that's obviously critically important as well. Document, document, document. There's never enough documentation when it comes to these elements. And I, I just want to pick on one of the elements, asking the right question. I think that is critically important. Logical, deductive reasoning I don't need to answer this question because you already provided me the answer in this set of emails, but I do need to know this in order to, I think, get into now, let's go into the technical side of things. Uh, and Lou, uh, respectfully want to uh, highlight the, do you need to have, with that logical reasoning, an adversarial mindset to see what tactics, techniques, and procedures could have been used and, you know, are there elements of anti-forensics? Is there what could have been done here? And I need to kind of collate that in my mind. Is, is that a true statement? Yes. Uh, I, I would say that having that type of a perspective going into any case is, is going to serve you well. Being aware of, of some of the different IOCs, some of the different techniques that exist in the wild, um, whether that comes down to like reading uh, advisories that are sent out, you know, checking out research papers, being aware with, of, of current events in that regard, um, because you can start to pick up on certain IOCs. 
you start picking up on on certain programs that are being employed and and while it not it might not necessarily match directly to that of an, a, a known atp it's still going to be something that helps you better understand um and to your point about like the approach and asking the right questions <laughs> i've found oftentimes that based on we'll call it poor implementation that tends to work against you more from a responsive aspect and and triage and review the the lack of basic logging your retention period is not to where it should be based on the the amount of traffic that's generated all like there's more it's almost like it's almost like sometimes there's more working against you as to how the, the organization has things set up versus the adversary itself so that is that's another uh that's another like key piece there as well like um but but to put to your point thinking from the perspective of the attacker i think is great because when you ask those questions okay uh what application just not to get in the weeds with this but specific question we have an impacted web server for example it's like okay great it's two things i can pick out from that i know that there in theory there should be is logs associated with that and there's applications running on that web server awesome what, what applications are running on that web server? When's the last time you've run a vulnerability scan? Well, you know, what, what version are you running of X, Y, and Z? And then from there, you can you know that, or you have the ability to understand, okay, it's obviously internet facing by design. So it can be hit from the web, can be targeted, as well as there's applications running on there. And there's a set of logs that, that should in theory, um, log those requests against specific resources sitting on the web server. And I know that not only from like an analyst perspective, but it's an impacted web server, whether it's defaced, whether there's web shells on there, that is going to be logged in some way, shape or form in theory um, in the IIS log. So thinking of it from that type of a perspective and asking those questions, and, and I, I want to touch on something before I forget about it, specific to asking the right questions. And this is, this is why having the ability to separate yourself from the checklist i need to ask these in every call you, that is not the case you need to be able to see specific uh case types whether it, again using the example of of an impacted web server versus um a kiosk that was popped versus what insert your device that was was pwned and how it was potentially impacted you, those types of details are going to drive what questions you ask a hundred percent of the time. Yes, there are going to be some some broad range questions that you're always going to be asking, but you have to be willing to to deviate from that set list of canned questions. It's not going to work that way. And if it is, if you want to take that approach, you're going to be asking a lot of questions that aren't necessarily relevant or important within that first call. Because that that initial triage call, the initial set of conversations, that is of the utmost importance. Like and then from there you work you work your way out because everyone's hot and bothered there's an incident that's happening they're stressed you know with with smaller organizations not only are they the network administrator and the custodian but they're also the groundskeeper and you know they 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 manage everyone's taxes in the town so it's like they wear many hats so to making the best use of people's times uh, in the time of 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 an incident in the face of an incident and asking those right questions it's like extreme i cannot cannot uh overstate that enough it's it's extremely important absolutely now you bring up another really great point lou is the the role of empathy because 
usually when you're talking to somebody, this is not the best day they've ever had, right? This is uh, probably one of the worst days in their professional career in a lot of cases. Um, how do you deal with that? Is there an, an element of empathy that you need or it's let's give me the information, we're going to help, you know, and kind of alleviate some of that. That's, a, that's a very good question. And I think it builds a little bit into, you know, some of the soft skills I was talking about, the communication, the listening, um, interpersonal skills. It, it all kind of goes hand in hand. Um, I've found that oftentimes because we're conducting things on a phone or through um, a web-based meeting portal, you don't, I'm not standing next to somebody and looking at their face. You know, I'm not able to, to pick up on certain, you know, are their eyes puffy? Have they been crying? Is this literally the worst day? Um, but actually listening to what they're saying, what resources are available, um, dealing with that, I think is on the fly 100% of the time. And by listening to the way in which they speak, one of the one of my techniques that I employ when I'm on a call is we have an incident handling worksheet that gets filled out. And prior to jumping on the call, we get that. So it does ask a lot of those typical questions that one might ask during um, during an, an incident response call, but it takes care of the low hanging fruit. So I can really pivot off those questions and focus on the others. But one thing that I do, the technique is I want them to explain to me in their own words the incident. What's happened thus far? Have there been any shifts, any changes, any updates aside from what's been filled out when the incident's incident handling worksheet was completed? Um, and I listen to what they have to say. And that helps me gauge the language to be used, the, the tone, the sense of urgency. Um, that, that really drives kind of how I deal with that and, and make it so that it's not painful because you're, you're right. A lot of times you get some of these people on the phone and they're, they're hyper stressed because they're the only person that does this. Um, and they, they really just, they need help now, yesterday, you know, like, so that's, that's something that's kind of the, one of the ways that, that I deal with that is I listen, I listen to what they have to say, because, you know, some people are, they want the, the terse tactical and to the point response. You guys, your network is burned down. This is what you need to do now. Other people don't want that. They want to be laid down softly, which is fine. But it's it's really that that listening element is is critical because everyone responds everyone responds differently to devastating <laughs> devastating news. You know, like, <laughs> they do, they do exactly. No, that's fantastic. I, I think I, I just. One of the things I don't hear much about, and, and kind of why the reason I brought it up, Lou, is you often hear of the technical capability, but there is such an underlying requirement for soft skill in the space in order to do exactly what you do and, you know, um, and what you've just mentioned. I think it needs to be highlighted more. I think there's some element of that training where it's that emotional intelligence is needed for your, like you said, active listening. I'm hearing to what they want to hear in terms of what they've said to me, you know, do they need, yeah, everything's going to be okay. They need the reassurance or they just need, this is what you do. I need this information and we'll help triage from here. And, you know, you've got to respond differently. So that's, I think, critically important. And uh, you put it phenomenally uh, as usual. That was awesome. That was really good. Lou, I'm going to transfer now. And one of my adages is, so we've gone through kind of the skill set, the person you're looking for. One of my adages is you hire for attitude and you train for skill 
once they're inside the organization. We need good people, we can train. You know, there's elements to this that can be learned. And so from that learned perspective of core technical skill, what sets apart from both experience versus training? Um, is there any training that's really set apart in your mind that said that you've taken and, okay, now I have a better appreciation for what I'm doing. I can put that into practice. And are there other elements that you've, you know, it's, I'm just going to learn this by hands-on experience. There's no other way to get this type of training. And, and in some cases, that's probably dealing with uh, uh, kind of the person on the other line and, and trying to get to the, the root cause of an underlying issue. So a couple of questions there. Let's delve into into those. In a, in sure, questions. sure. Now, and, and, and I, I, I do hope that I'm answering this question, but um, as far as the ideal candidate from like a technical or, or previous experience going into or looking to get involved with instant response, digital forensics, et cetera, uh, some of the best people, the most intelligent people that I've worked with, oddly enough, and maybe not even oddly enough, either come from uh, a background in, a, in an operations center or help desk. And the reason for that is because they... into a lot of, in, in a number of cases, the people that I've had the, the joy and pleasure of working alongside, those people who have had the, that type of an experience, not only do they know Windows OS, specifically if they went through to a higher help desk tier, they know the operating system like fantastic, like flawlessly. And that's huge because still to this day, in, in, from an enterprise perspective, it's like um, Windows-based OS is still vastly utilized. Uh, and, and I don't necessarily foresee that changing. Um, but anyway, those types of people that have that type of experience, not only do they have the technical skills um, to be able to walk through, it's like, okay, we're going to be diving into Windows event logging. They already know that. They have a good understanding of what questions to ask, how to navigate. But they can also handle kind of that, the human element, because it's what they do. You know, any help desk, you know, they're always troubleshooting, constantly troubleshooting, constantly working with, you know, the person that doesn't know what a browser is like, it's just, they, they can, they, they, they've heard and seen it all. So I found those types of individuals, um, IT help desk and then operation center, like a SOC, they have a better understanding of how to triage. So that previous work experience I find is like, I love, I love seeing that if somebody's, if somebody worked like help desk for like, three, four years, five years, he got to like a second, third tier, senior position. It's like, you have some idea of what you're doing and we can kind of trick, we can backfill the rest. Um, that's, I love that. I love seeing that. I think it's great. I think it's something that, uh, not that, not that I think anybody who's like in college is going to be listening to this, but I think an interesting opportunity for a college student who's in this degree, um, it's not going to sound glamorous, if there's a help desk position open up for students to like jump on board, do it. That's like hands-on experience right there. Yes, you're going to be helping professors who have no idea how to connect a printer. You're going to be doing that. But on the flip side, you are interacting within the Windows OS from a from a more technical technical perspective. Nine times out of ten, every single day that you that you're there. So I always encourage that. Um, you know, it's going to be better than working in some places that college students have to <laughs> be subjected to work at. And I know that from experience, um, but it's I, I don't know. I, I love I love seeing that. Um, and as far as like other like training, like I, I think the ability, um, you know, oftentimes 
you think of Sands, and that's like the end all be all, and and it is fantastic. I I cannot highlight that enough. Sands is awesome. It's it's industry recognized. It's an industry standard, and they're always developing new courses, and that's wonderful. But I often I, I do also think that um, any of the CompTIA stuff, you know, there there's certain things that have the potential to to be overlooked, um, and they're still good like entry level. Like, for example, I know you and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, CCNA is one of my like goals, right? But in order to backfill some of the network stuff, I'm doing this, or I'm doing the network plus to gear myself up towards that. Because I know that it's kind of the, what is it, an inch deep, a mile wide type of an approach where it's like, okay, um, you know, I got a lot of that, like the network-based forensics got some of that, uh, you know, in school, academic, but again, very inch deep, mile wide, didn't really get technical, like hands on. And then there was some stuff hands on at work that you just had to deal with. You had to work with it from that perspective. So now I want to take a step back and, and really fully backfill that. So I think when it comes to training and, and what what qualities, what things stick out, anytime you see SANS immediately, like, yes, that's awesome. Certificates, as you and I know, SANS is, can be a drain. A certification can be a drain. And if people are able to go through, they understand the course material, that's great. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to underestimate that of like hands-on experience as well. Um, instant response is, in my opinion, is a fair, in digital forensics, is a very specialized position. So what, like, for example, uh, previously, I worked with a lot of people who had been in the industry for many, many decades. And they started off in other aspects of cyber, as we now uh, kind of uh, the, the term we use now, cyber. Start off as like in app dev. They start off as network administrators. And then they moved into uh, a cert role. They then moved into instant response because they had a much deeper specialized understanding of not only how to build an application, but how to break an application. They understand how to like administer an application as well as like break and, you know, take advantage of certain protocols, you know, like they, they are thinking at it from that perspective. So I, I, I hope that answers your question about like some of the different skills, training, job experience. Um, anytime you see those things as well, that always jumps out too. Um, oh, I, I spent, you know, three to four years building applications for X companies. Like, oh, that's awesome. You know, you know, what, what were you using to build these things? Like, how did you test them? Like, asking those types of questions to people. I, I think those are those are huge things. Um, it's often the dream that people are like, well, I'm gonna go back to school, get my degree, and then immediately get into this specialized position. It's like, you kind of have to put the work in in some of the, the more like grind-based or like just uh, intense high, uh, high frequency positions, call centers, operation centers. There's always incidents coming in. You're always working. Uh, put that time in, and, and then from there you can you can lateral into things that are more specialized, like a cert role, like a forensic analyst role, because you have a deeper understanding for for uh, for some of uh, the ways in which you know these systems communicate, operate, and and again they're built. Absolutely. No, again, uh, awesome stuff, Lou. One of the things I'm I'm thinking about as well, as you mentioned that, is. Um, I think I'm seeing as a trend within the industry that a lot of digital forensics incident response teams are looking for diverse backgrounds because of 
we have Windows operating system. Fundamental, need to know it, it's there. But the diversity of where data, where business communication and business processes take place today is changed. You know, 20 years ago, you could, you know, you could have pretty much mastered the domain. Now I see specialization within digital forensics and incident response because you have to. There is not one person that knows it all. And I think you even mentioned it as a skill. You've got to be flexible. You know, cases are going to come in that you are not the expert on, but you learn and you build capability. You work with subject matter experts and things of that nature. And having a diverse team with diverse backgrounds, uh, I think it's fantastic. I think it improves capability and also response time. Uh, your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I, I think having um, one of the things that we've, we've toyed around with on the, on the search side of the house is having subject matter, subject matter experts that exist within the team that have uh, extensive uh, training in something like uh, industrial controls, ICS, um, having the ability to be more of like a Unix based uh, like expert Mac. I, I think that's kind of, and I would uh, cloud another one for for example a huge trend that that is is going to continue to just continue to envelope the industry. Um, understanding and having people that can be adaptable, but also from I think the analyst perspective, understanding that it's like well, X teammate has these skill sets, I don't have those, but that's not a bad thing. And again, that's almost like. It's not necessarily an ego thing, but, you know, some people want to know everything. And it's like that's as you had pointed out, it's like it's, it's virtually impossible. So work together and in, in, in building out a team, um, I, I think to that point, really embracing uh, if people want to get involved. Oh, I, I want to take these courses on Mac OS. Uh, a friends, of course, on, on how to triage and how to work through kind of the, the Mac operating system, much more so than I would get in more of a generic uh, a YouTube video or a case like I want to really get granular with this so that when these cases come in, I can be the point person for them and help, you know, uh, educate my teammates. I think that's, um, you know, strength in numbers, but also not being afraid to allow people to become subject matter experts in these varying fields because it is rapidly changing, um, I think is is great. <laughs> I think it's a great approach. Well, I think it opens up then opportunities for those looking for career transition. Uh, you know, I've, I'm an application developer. Perfect. You know, there are positions in DFIR, Digital Forensics Incident Response, that we can use those skills, those talents, and build capability. It also leads me to another question, Lou, about the importance of mentorship within business units and within really the industry as a whole. Um, I see you as a mentor. You do, you work with a lot with junior analysts uh, and really, again, um, helping others understand capability and the requirements of a strong digital forensics incident response process. Uh, what's your thoughts on mentorship and, and how does that fit into um, career pathing, really? I've been very fortunate um, throughout my career thus far to have worked alongside, um, I used I used the term sparsely, but hyper intelligent people, um, people who have been in the industry for a very long time, people who think and process information much differently than I do, and I think mentorship is something that is easily overlooked. 
because they're people get kind of caught up in the day-to-day type stuff and setting aside time setting you know allowing those people who do have those who are very talented and who have those kind of expansive knowledge and skill sets that's it's like vast it's it it's it's invaluable i mean because again you know high tide raises all boats so if you have somebody that does have a specific skill set let them allocate time allow them to allocate time to and make a point to really foster um you know foster talent and bring people up to speed you know use use those tools inside um it doesn't need to always be a sans degree or a sans certification it doesn't always need to be some some specialized cert there's programs that that certain people can develop and um they have fun with that because they're passionate about it so allow them to do so you know and and kind of you know teach these these teammates um, like I said, I, I was very fortunate to have some really, really intelligent people that have that that mentored me. And um, I think from the mentor ease perspective, if that's a word, I'm making it a word or if it's not a word, I'm making it a word from that perspective. I think it's important to not only, again, listen, right, but also implement it in a way that makes sense to you. That I think is something that people struggle with in this industry. People want to parrot. They just want to hear something and they don't want to understand why it is. The answer is the way that it is. You know, like it, it's just funny because like I, you know, I've worked with, I've gone to school with, I, I've, I, I've operated alongside of some of these people where it's like you show them something and then they immediately, they, they like replicate it to like a T and it's like, don't be afraid to, to, you know, drizzle your own elements of your personality into this although it's these are this is these are machines and they're zeros and ones like you're the human element here just because i use certain verbiage just because i have a way in which i approach this it's okay to process things differently and approach it in your way and ask questions if something doesn't make sense it's better to really break it down and get get it so you understand as somebody who is being mentored versus allowing the person who's mentoring you to just go through the motions, ask questions, listen, and apply it so that you get it. It's like you and I were talking, you and I were talking yesterday just about like network-based stuff. And I said to you pretty much like point blank, like I'm going to ask really dumb questions because this is all like, I'm getting back into this again. I, it's not something I do every single day. I don't build a network every single day. So I'm going to ask dumb questions but I don't care because I want to know this and people are either afraid to ask those questions or, or whatever, but it's to your detriment, you know, like it's again, using that term, ever evolving threat landscape, you have to be adaptable. You have to be willing to be vulnerable and to admit like, I don't, I'm not super familiar with this. Let's take a step back and really approach this from a a more boiled down version, you know, like, or, or a higher level. Like, I don't know. That's, I, I hope that answers your question about mentoring. Oh, it does. No, okay. absolutely it does. Now, I think as well uh, with that is um, it, it's always good to be asking those questions, like you say, to put yourself in a position where we just got to admit the facts. We don't know everything. Uh, and I ask questions of you all the time. And I have to because you, you're practiced, you're a subject matter expert, and it behooves me to really be the mentor e your new word, um, uh, from you. And you're the mentor providing that back to me. And so I do see it, um, as I mentioned, and we kind of go back to the beginning, that top-down approach in terms of 
leadership is, is you kind of mentor them in processes, in the requirement and the need, and which is, and then full circle, it comes back to junior analysts where you're building the future, right? I'm preparing my, the person who's going to take my job basically is I'm giving the them the skills, I'm giving them the lessons learned in order to uh, kind of give them the capabilities to move forward uh, in a way that, you know, you've learned. Uh, and as, as you said, you know, you put your own spin on things. You you need to understand it at that level. And it brings that other, you know, kind of soft skill of curiosity. If you don't want to know how something works, you know, DFIR, that, 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 that's tough uh, because you kind of need to know the nuts and bolts. You need to not only be able to click a button in a tool, you need to understand how that tool works. Uh, again, we always go with this adage, and it may be wrong, but I feel it's right, is everything I do with a case could be reflected in court. And I need to be able to represent that to a degree that one, I can communicate to non-technical persons, but then my work can also be challenged by a technical person. So it kind of needs to evolve both spaces. And so it gets into your communication element, uh, again, in another dimension, which is fantastic. Excellent. Um, all right, final section, Lou, is what trends are you seeing in the DFIR space or even e-discovery? Anything that's got your interest at this point in time? Hmm. Um, it's a great question. I, aside from you know some of the network stuff that, that we've kind of touched on multiple times, I find the idea um, just in how much the cloud is, the term itself is being just thrown around constantly. But I, I remember when I first kind of, you know, really started getting, you know, entered into the industry, um, I was very anti-cloud, like big time, because it's just, it was relatively new. There was, it was still trying to figure out the, the ramifications of, of the implementation of this, of the poor implementation of it, because it's a, it is a great solution. Um, but I think there's a lot more that, that needs to be, there's a lot more thought that needs to be put into it than I think uh, people tend to do. Um, if based on what I'm seeing, just from a from case perspective, for example, if, if what I'm seeing as far as like entities receiving a device, deploying it, not understanding how it's really administered, not necessarily understanding, uh, just taking it out of the box, plug and play. I don't really get it. I don't know how long things are being logged. If that is the if if that's the kind of the the continuous thread between a shockingly large number of organizations, then I do not trust that their their work within the cloud is going to be any better. And that provides huge, huge, huge vulnerabilities down the road. Um, so so as far as like things that I've been thinking about, interests, trends, etc., um, that's like massive you know getting an understanding visibility and understanding of uh, an insight into your network like that i think will never exhaust itself because again every every size entity is different so you're going to have uh resource issues you're going to have people who just don't care they want to come in and punch their car time card and get out of there um but but yeah i think the cloud as it becomes more uh widely accepted which it i mean it arguably has been, as that becomes more widely accepted, but more importantly, widely adopted from an enterprise perspective, um, I think being cognizant of what the cloud actually is and accessibility, access control, um, just 
really, really understanding kind of the the potential impact if something were to be compromised, um, because that is it's it's I would argue it's 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 much different um, than your your standard or traditional um, you know hardware based solution on site hardware based solutions. It's, it's much different. Um, but yeah, that, that that would be the that would be the thing. Highlight the importance of of understanding the cloud. Um, and then I think the the other thing that we've we've we saw kind of I, I want to say maybe like three four years ago is industrial controls, um, you know, dealing with you know your power authorities and some of those more rudimentary networks that are air gapped, but understanding um, what the ramifications of something like that is compromised. Um, I think oftentimes you know you have some of these networks that the same person who's been monitoring and maintaining these networks. They've been doing so for 25 years. So, and then they retire and someone else comes in and they're not fully, they don't really get it. So it's like, oh, I'll just plug my my Win 10 device in and I'll poke around and it's like, things are running like Win 7 and prior, like Windows 98, like because they have to, because the the Steam Valve controller is has a program that's only can be interpreted on that OS. So those, I think those are the two trends Um that I, I would I would either recommend people like look into um, and be aware of because I think it'll only play more of an importance as we continue along, um, not only with kind of the geopolitical atmosphere but also just the, the trends to be more efficient. P- enterprise organizations. I mean, if you think about it, it's like our workforce. We've been a, a large number of the workforce has been remote. Companies have been embracing that that creates issues from a security perspective, access control. So now you have companies also, at one time, they might not have been embracing the cloud. Now they're thinking, well, this is a good way to, to save on uh, to save on funds in, in, in a number of different ways. Well, what does that mean from a security perspective? Um, which is why, again, the communication element up and down the, the ladder is of the utmost importance. Um, but yeah, those are, those are, I think, some of the, the trends uh, some of the hot topics I think people should be should be familiar with and continue to be familiar with. Yeah, definitely. That that's fantastic. I mean, it, it's stuff that we talk about all the time, and it's uh, I think as you mentioned, the threat landscape is changing. Right, cloud is a whole new infrastructure, and our industrial control systems have been there for a while, but now are being um, used as uh, targets, as you mentioned, in, in specific campaigns, and it's behooves us to understand and be able to create capability for both incident response, forensics, even from a defensive side, you know, kind of the the other side of the blue team, as it were, in order to build capability there. So, Lou, I want to thank you so much. This was a phenomenal uh, conversation. That's what we have for our show today. We hope we've enjoyed the discussion. Uh, Also, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow CIS on social media for the latest cybersecurity news and updates. Until then, I'm Sean Atkinson. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.